It's no secret that writing can be lonely work, but does it really have to be? Whether you're full-time, part-time, or just starting out, you'll get insights into the tricks, tips, and production habits of writers from every level of the biz. From best-selling authors to those launching their first novels, you're sure to be in the company of friends as we encourage great writers to divulge and share their secrets. This is The Great Writer Share Podcast with your host, best-selling author, Daniel Wilcox. Hello and welcome to the Great Writer Share podcast with me, Daniel Wilcox, where every week I dip into the lottery bucket of today's greatest writers to pick their brains and find out what's working in today's world of publishing. Today's date is the 19th of August. Uh, it's a blustery day outside in uh, sunny old England. I've been in and out of cafes today, just finishing up at the end of my series, um, which has been wonderful because I am literally, I can see the finish line. I'm ready to write the end um, I've enjoyed writing it. It's been a lot of fun, but I'm definitely ready to get working on something else. So tomorrow, absolutely tomorrow, I'm going to be handing that over to my editor and going, here you go, go fix my mess <laughs> and, uh, and and polish it and make it shine. And uh, yeah, that, that, that series will come out soon, which will be absolutely fantastic. Um, a little note as well, I went to Cambridge at the weekend to visit my sister and uh, for anyone who's not been to Cambridge in the UK, it's it's really a beautiful city. I mean, the, the buildings there and, and the, the actual history around the centre itself. Um, if you've seen The Theory of Everything, the you kind of get a vibe for what it's all about there, but it, you can't really describe it properly without actually visiting the place. And we went punting, we went punting on the river on, on the boats, which was an experience in itself, saw some people fall in, which was absolutely hilarious. Um, and... The only downside to that trip was actually the four-hour journey total that should have been two hours there and two hours back turned into a nine-hour round journey for myself. Various buses and trains, which was a lot of... I was going to say fun then, but sarcasm can only go so far. Um, but I just wanted to point out that even though I was delayed by hours thanks to the wonder that is British football and football hooligans out on the on the lines itself and slowing down all the trains... Um, it's one of the things I'm thankful for is actually being able to be mobile with my work, have my laptop. And rather than just sitting there and kind of feeling sorry for myself, I managed to crack on and just be productive and just get things done and save myself a load of work that I needed to do this week. So I can actually take a bit more of a chilled out approach to the rest of my week because I managed to do most of it thanks to the British football hooligan. So thank you guys, whoever won. I I personally don't really care about football, but if you do, I'm not saying that's anything against you. I'm just not really a football fan. So today's guest is Alison Ingleby, who is a USAJ bestselling author. Uh, Alison's really, really interesting. She's someone who uh, I've encountered a couple of times on my author journey. Someone who in my previous show with Luke Condor, The Story Studio, we actually recorded an episode and we chatted for an hour or so and then discovered after the uh, interview was done that the audio had actually corrupted and we couldn't actually publish that episode. So I was very thankful to have Alison uh, agree to come on the show and give us or give me some uh, time this time so we can get back into those questions and, and put out the content. So I'm happy to say that this episode is going ahead and Alison will be airing uh, episode five of The Great Writers uh, Share podcast, which is fun for me. Um, and in this episode, we go into things like how uh, how Alison approaches publishing anthologies from both sides. So from curating the anthologies to actually just being a an entrant into the anthologies, how to hit the USA Today bestseller list, which is very, very interesting for me, um, and why it's important to write the things that you love when pursuing full-time career authoring as part of your journey. I want to say a quick shout-out to say thank you to new patrons. So we've got a new patron this week, Innes Richens. Thank you very much, Innes, for joining us. Um, everything that you need is over on the Patreon page now. You're getting access to the show's 24 hours in advance. You're getting entry into the monthly giveaway. Um, and obviously, you're getting this wonderful shout-out on the podcast itself. So all the people listening to the show will hear your name. As I said last week, 
This week's monthly giveaway is Craig Martell's release strategies, uh, a counterintuitive way to look at it, but the less people that are on the Patreon page, the more likely you are to win. So there's actually quite a big chance of the current patrons winning the book and getting all the advanced knowledge from Mr. Craig Martell on how to release your book and do it well. Um, and this is from a guy who's released well over 100 books in the last two or three years and makes a good living out of doing so. So it's definitely worth getting involved. So without further ado, I will get out of UA and we'll get straight into the interview with Alison Ingleby. Alison Ingleby is a USA Today best-selling author of sci-fi and fantasy fiction. She loves writing cross-genre books featuring complex characters, twisting plots, and fast-paced action with a dash of romance. When not writing, Alison enjoys reading, drinking tea, and spending time outdoors. She lives in Yorkshire, England, but her heart loiters by the sea in northwest Scotland. Alison, welcome to the show. Hi, it's great to be here. Fantastic. So to start with, I just want to say, is it better to call you Ali or Alison? Because I know that your, your actual writing name is Alison, but I know a lot of people call you Ali. So what would you prefer on this show? Uh, you, either is fine. My friends call me Ali, but kind of professionally, I'm Alison and that's the name of my books. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll go professionally because we're not really friends. Um, <laughs> oh, <damn. laughs> Shall I end this, end this conversation now? <laughs> yeah, we'll, just, we'll just pause it. And that's the show, guys. Thank you for joining me for this week's episode. Um, but no, seriously. So... Um, I wanted to get you on the show because, I mean, we had, so in my previous show that I recorded uh, with Luke Condal, the story studio, um, we actually had you as a guest and we recorded an hour-long conversation with you in which afterwards we discovered that the audio was corrupted and we weren't able to publish the episode. So number one, I feel really, really bad for that happening in the first place. Um, but number two, I think that, I think you're just an interesting person to talk to in terms of the writing that you're working on, um, some of the stuff that you've achieved. And Obviously, going a little bit into our story, last year we met in person in London at the 20 Books Conference. This year, you went to the 20 Books Edinburgh Conference and we saw each other again. Um, guests of the show are going to be wondering why I'm bringing on everyone that I met at that conference, but we'll, we'll get to a point where we'll run out of people, I promise. Um, but my question to start with is, you, you do go to a lot of these sort of author events and, and writer conferences, and I just wanted to ask, what do you get out of them and what's your purpose when you go to these events? What are you trying to achieve or, or, or get out of them? So I think the main thing that I get out of them is friends. <laughs> I feel like writing is quite um, a solitary activity and you can get kind of quite stuck in your room and, and focused on what you're doing. And although you can communicate with people via social media, and I do a lot of that as well, um, a lot of Facebook friends, which is great when you've got people you're connecting with across the world, it's not quite the same as meeting people in person, having a conversation and really getting to know them. Um, and certainly I found that when I've met people online and then met them in real life, so to speak, um, I feel like there's kind of a bond there which you, you didn't have before. So I think I think that's the first thing. It's, and that's probably the main reason I go to a lot of things is just to, <laughs> to meet new people and make friends. Um, and it's nice talking to different people about what they're doing. I think it's also a really good opportunity for networking. So I I haven't personally gone to a conference or an event with an idea of pitching someone for like a book. But that's mainly because that that's just not what I've wanted to do yet but I know some people who have who've kind of made a focused effort to kind of say right I want to speak to this particular author who publishes other people's work um and and kind of pitch my idea to them and then they've come out of that with some kind of 
uh, collaboration or, or arrangements. So I think there's that side to it as well. But for me, it's more about um, meeting people and the sort of broad networking and kind of connections that that, that can bring. And, and particularly, I guess, within your genre. So, you know, it's always good to have um, people who you know within your genre, who you can do cross-promotion and, and that type of stuff with. Um, and I think, again, once you meet someone in person, it's a slightly different relationship from having spoken to them online. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. I think I, w- I was exactly the same, particularly with Edinburgh, where I went with sort of zero expectation of achieving anything or kind of, because a lot of the talks, although um, each year there'll be a new iteration on what's new and what's upcoming, it's not really the talks that I go for. It's just to see the people and be in that environment around the creatives. And there's something, there's something energizing about being around that environment and be- being around the people who are doing the thing that you're also doing and, and like you say if you're alone a lot of the time to then go to those conferences and be around those people and have that have that spark that that reignition of of what you're choosing to do that's something that can carry you forward quite a lot yeah I think that that is a really good point actually um and I think I don't know about you but I definitely come at the end of them I'm exhausted but I come away yeah. buzzing with <laughs> stuff. you know even even if you don't get any new ideas. Often, you know, a lot of the talks, particularly, for example, at Edinburgh, I've heard similar things before, but actually it's just that um, revalidation of what you should be doing and that reminder of, okay, this is what I need to do. I just need to get my head in gear, do this. And it's really inspiring to be around all those other people, um, you know, people who are just starting out and people who are super, super successful and lots of different people at different stages of the journey. And yeah, there is definitely a buzz about it. You get the crash afterwards, but when you're there, it's a buzz. <laughs> kind of cling on to that, I find. Would you say you're an introvert or an extrovert? Whereabouts are you on that scale? Um, so I like to say I'm a sociable introvert. So I'm definitely <laughs> an introvert. Um, I enjoy being social, but it really knackers me out. So I, I am an introvert. Um, and I find that the more time I spend on my own in my little office writing away, the more, I guess, the more introverted you get. I guess social skills are something that you do have to practice. Um, and if you're not going out to, you know, an office job or interacting with people every day, then, then you can lose a bit of that. So I do like going along to these events. I can practice my social skills. <laughs> and what would you say has been the main difference in not only your own publishing, but also the any of the the lessons that the let's say quote successful authors who gave the the talks have given within that sort of year frame so going back from london and then looking now at edinburgh is there any sort of any strategy or anything that's changed a lot that you think was worth highlighting that you took away from that and thought yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna use this um so the, the thing i found most useful from practical perspective well, there were two things actually one was ams ads um which is an ever-changing piece um and i think certainly Last year at London, I wasn't doing AMS ads or advertising at that point because I only had, I think, one book and a couple of stories and anthologies out. And I'd sort of made a conscious decision that I wasn't going to start advertising until I had a couple more books out. Um, so that was kind of, oh, well, I take notes, but it's not really relevant, whereas now it is more relevant. Um, and I think the other thing for me was branding and looking at branding. But that's something which I took away, actually, from because I went to 20 Books Vegas as well last year. Lucky. So I took away from so I took away from that and Edinburgh talked quite a lot about kind of branding and personal brands. So that was really useful from a, a kind of thought perspective. Nice. Um, but I think also I'm, the, I think the thing with London, because it was my, I guess the first big conference and because I was quite a sort of newbie, 
I was writing down everything and thinking, right, I need to do this. I need to do this. I need to do this and this. And now I'm very much, I think my attitude at Edinburgh was more, these are a load of things I can do. And I need to pick which of these is important to me and which of these is what I want to do because you can't do everything. Yeah. It's very easy to get lost going down the rabbit hole of the things that you could be doing. Um, but then the people that are doing that kind of stuff and doing it well are the people that have about five or six different assistants and they're able to to diversify what they're doing there. But but you're right. I I, I was the same in that first that first one. It was my notebook is absolutely chocker full of, of of stuff. And at this one, it was more a case of if there was a nugget of of gold that I thought, you know what, I need to grip onto this, I'll quickly write that down. But most of it was just listening and, and being there in that moment. Yeah, and absorbing it all. Mm. What would you say is your, if there's someone listening now who is, let's say, introverted, who's thinking of going to a, a writer's event, what would be your bit of advice for them who they might be a bit overwhelmed by the idea of being around so many other people? Um, so my number one piece of advice is make a couple of friends before you go. Um, and ideally, if you can, and I appreciate not everyone can do this, but if you can meet someone else in person before you go, I think that's really helpful. So when we went to London, um, I went with a friend of mine, Meg, who lives sort of quite near where I live. And we traveled down together and we'd met before. I can't remember. I think we connected via Twitter or something <laughs> a couple of years ago. Anyway, we became quite good friends. And um, and we, and Meg knew more people than me because you'd kind of been in the industry a bit longer. Um, so I was a bit of her tag along for the event. Um, but I find it's so much less intimidating if you can walk into a room with someone. And, you know, you're not going to stick with that person for the whole time. And for goodness sake, don't let it, you know, don't make it so you only stick with that person and don't talk to other people. But often if you are if you have a bit of kind of social anxiety about talking to people or, or going in, it, it can kind of soften it a bit. If you know someone, if you can't meet someone in person, then connect with them online. You know, you, you probably know someone who's in your genre. There are plenty of genre groups and groups. You can meet with people, just be nice to people, I guess, and, and start talking to people. Um, and then when you do go to these conferences or events, you know that there's somewhere, someone there is going to be a friendly face. You then do have to do that kind of slightly awkward bit of does their profile picture on Facebook actually match what they look like in reality? <laughs> and kind of you're going down with your eyes sort of hovering on people's badges, which is slightly yeah. awkward for a while. But you can laugh. But everyone does that. Everyone's got the <laughs> yeah. awkward downward glance at everyone's bellies just to make sure that the names match. And yeah. And every year I manage to somehow mess up my label. So it's just a, a blurry mess of black pen. <laughs> yeah, my handwriting is terrible. So I don't think anyone can ever read my name. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we'll leave Edinburgh in the past for a second and go more into the stuff that you're working on. Um, you mentioned earlier about your, you've got a, you had a couple of box sets back then. Um, you've been featuring a couple of anthologies. I wanted to know, what is your relationship with anthologies and box sets? Because you seem to be getting your name into a lot of little collaborations. Uh, actually my resolution for this year was no more anthologies <laughs> um so I've done quite a few so I was in I think three anthologies last year um and then there was another anthology which I organized which got published at the beginning of this year and then I was in a box set which was a slightly different thing that was a list aiming box set so we were aiming to hit the USA Today bestseller list um, so it was, a diff I guess, different motivations between them. So I think initially I got into anthologies. Again, it was to really, I guess, connect with people. 
um and to, to make friends a <laughs> 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 social introvert and, and terrible because i always say yes to far too much probably um <laughs> when an opportunity comes up i'm like yes i'll do that without actually maybe thinking through the kind of work it's a um, good attitude to have <laughs> yeah so um so i think initially it was it was to get involved in something and also to try and reach different readers by because it's a bit of a cross promotional uh, effort in terms of particularly in the indie space. Um, if you do a kind of multi author anthology, then you can each share that with your readers and hopefully find some new readers in your genre. So I think the first couple I did weren't in my genre. Um, they were just generally British and Irish authors. Um, and that did mess up my also boughts a bit because there were quite a lot of romance authors in there. And I do not write much romance in my books. So um, I don't think that that really helped. That's one of the things I learned from it, I guess, because I was quite a new author starting out at that point. But they were fun to do. Um, and then the ones I've done since then were quite focused on dystopian um, in terms of the anthologies. And then the box set, as I said, was a completely different kettle of fish. But we can talk about that if you want to talk about it. Well, let's dive into the anthology a bit deeper, because like you said, you've been on both sides of that. So you've been uh, included as part of an anthology and you've, and you've run your own one as well. What have you found have been the key differences between either side? Are there any sort of pitfalls that people should be watching out for? What should people do to actually approach the idea of getting themselves into an anthology with other people because like you say it's a fantastic way to make sure you're you're hitting different readers and also displaying your work at the same time and drawing them over to you yeah so in terms of I guess getting into anthology so it it depends what type of anthology it is so some and obviously trad anthologies are kind of submission based so sometimes um, an author will decide they're doing an anthology and they will Um, put out kind of a call for submissions so for example future visions which is the anthology I was in last summer um, Brian the author who was organizing that I'm in a group with him and he posted that he was you know looking for sci-fi authors to do stories for this so I submitted for that Um, the other ones yeah have come across the ones which I've joined again have just come up in groups and I've just happened to be there at the right place at the right time so that's I I guess part of that is being um being in and I use Facebook groups quite a lot for connecting with other authors um is being in those places and and be willing to say yes um I do also think it's important to say no if it's not right I think that's one thing I've kind of learned because they can be quite a lot of work um so do think about whether it's something you really want to do, what it's going to take away from, because you've only got a finite amount of time. And certainly my so my short stories tend to turn into novellas. So <laughs> um, I was like, yeah, I can write a short story in a couple of weeks. <laughs> um, and actually it turned into a novella and it, it took up much more time. So being aware of that. Um, the other I guess it's slightly, it's not an anthology, but another experiment, I guess, that I was involved in was doing a set of short stories published individually on a two-week rapid release with a group of authors based around a similar prompt. So they were all sci-fi and fantasy stories. Um, And that one is still published at the moment. I might publish it at some point. Um, And that didn't work quite so well I think the marketing side of things um but again that I got into that because I was part of one of these groups so it's about making friends and networking really so was Um, that last one sorry just to dig a bit deeper into that one that was that last one like you say it was short stories published rapid release 
but they weren't necessarily under the same name. They weren't necessarily sort of advertised clumped. It was more a case of if you read one, you then followed the breadcrumbs to the next story and, and went like that. Not even that, really. And I think that's maybe where if we were doing it again, it could be improved upon. So each of the stories was standalone. So they had common branding in terms of the covers were the same, but different colours. Um, so you could easily see, but there was no thread between the stories and each was published by a different author. So there was okay. no logical route for a reader to start at one end and go to the other end, um, which I think, and I, and I think that was perhaps the downfall. And because they're short stories and they were being published alone, there perhaps wasn't the, the kind of drive for readers to, to buy them as they would, you know, an anthology, which, you know, maybe three or 400 pages long. Mm. Interesting way to experiment, though. It's always fun to try yeah. some new stuff and see how it goes. Yeah, it was fun, and I love that. I like. I love the story I wrote for that, and I had readers <laughs> go, "Are you going to write a series around this?" I'm like, uh, "Maybe really? when I decide to write sci-fi again." <laughs> <laughs> Could you tend to? Um, you've done a little bit of genre hopping over the past year or so. You've you've hit sci-fi. You've done dystopian. Um, from what I've seen, you've also kind of blended a little bit in with fantasy as well. Is there a reason that you've been genre hopping? How are you sort of approaching? your different stories and how you're how you're reaching the readers okay so um i love to read books which are multi-genre particularly kind of sci-fi fantasy um and i know that isn't the best way in terms of writing to market um but i also think it is important to to write the stories you love so um my main series my sort of more complete series is YA dystopian and that that isn't multi-genre that is straight up YA dystopian Hunger Games, Maze Runner, Divergent, that that sort of feel and that sort of style. And one I highly um, recommend to anyone listening, we'll put some links in the show notes. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, and my next series, which I have actually written book one of, um, but it's not published at the moment. That is dystopian, but it has what I like to think of as a fantasy flair. So there's a dragon, there's a bit of Roman mythology in there. Um, and I really love reading those type of book so I think like the the comparator I use is kind of Red Rising um I don't know if you've read Pierce Brown's Red Rising series but it's like like it is sci-fi but it does have a bit of a fantasy flair to it I find okay um and a bit of a fantasy feel Red Queen is another one which um I guess that is more fantasy so it's dystopian uh, but fantasy and this is probably my problem because I'm comparing to trad books rather than indie (laughs) books so I'd not recommend anyone does this (laughs) And so I try and keep dystopian as the kind of core theme throughout. And I have done a couple of short stories and novellas, which are more pure fantasy or pure sci-fi. And I am debating going into urban fantasy, but I don't know. I might not do that. (laughs) The whole of the arena. Urban fantasy was huge at the conference. The amount of people that were there that that were UF. Yeah, I think I had a bit of a revelation about urban fantasy there, actually. Because I think I kind of thought of it as this big sprawling genre which it is but I think there's actually quite a lot of subgenres and niches within that genre so if you're looking to market urban fantasy actually you need to find those kind of sub niches um and and kind of comparative novels and things from that when you're looking at marketing your stuff absolutely how do you approach uh researching and writing your books because like you say you you tend to write the things that you obviously love how do you pick a story idea and go, yeah, this is one I'm going to run with because, um, and I'm going to go on a little tangent here just because I think we mentioned this when we met up as well. One of the things that stuck with me about you was the fact that when I first met you, you mentioned about the fact that you, you're not, you're not seeking that all, unless this has changed, do correct me if I'm wrong. You're not seeking that rapid release model. You're quite a slow writer, 
but that's a process that works for you and that's something that, that you've been doing around the other work that you manage as well. So how do you commit to that idea and say, right, this is what I'm going to stick with if you know it's going to take sort of a couple of months to get to where it is that you want to go? It's quite hard, actually. Um, and I think that's something I've kind of discovered discovered in the author journey. So um, I think in terms of ideas, I kind of I jot all my ideas down in OneNote. So I have like a OneNote file which has all different story ideas. Um, and often it's kind of what appeals to me at the time and what I think might have legs, I guess, to be a full series as opposed to a novella or a short story. Um, so my first series, I, I mean, I planned it years and years ago. Um, and then when I was coming to plan my second series, um, I was a bit more looking at the market, um, thinking about what sort of tropes I wanted to include or what sort of features. Um, but a lot of the time, it just depends on what inspires me and what kind of ideas um, I get. I think it is. So I, I am a slow writer. I'm also... Um, I like to call myself a planter because I'm not I'm not a plotter, <laughs> but I'm also not quite a panther. But I do do quite a lot of pantsing, sort of discovery writing as I go, and I find that that makes my process uh, longer than perhaps someone who's really good at detail plotting and then just knows, okay, this is going to be a ninety thousand word book, and I just need to kick out three thousand words a day for the next, you know however many days and um, I also write long books so all my novels are over 100k and um, again um, that's something I'm working on bringing down uh, <laughs> for the marketability I think um, one thing I've discovered I guess is that for me releasing um, over a longer time scale hasn't really worked that well now I think it can work because I know authors who've done it um, but for example, what I'm looking at doing now is actually pulling my main series and rapid re-releasing it to try and kind of give it a bit of a kickstart again. And probably what I'll do in future is even though I'll write slow, I might make sure I've written the first couple of books and at least have the first two out fairly close together with maybe the third on pre-order um, when they go, just so you can justify putting in the marketing budget from the start I think and give it the, the best start out the gate and is that something you find comes more with experience the more books that you bring out kind of approaching the releases in that way because asking somebody who's released their first book to hold back is nigh on impossible and I know that I'm I, I was exactly the same uh, the first book in in the rot series I think if I went back now um and, and re-released I would absolutely wait until the next one was done and potentially the next one as well I think if it's, I think there's a difference in your first series and I feel, I don't know, you probably feel the same that I've developed a lot as a writer through that series. And part of that was releasing those books and getting feedback from readers and getting more beta readers onto my team who read the first book. Um, and a lot of that, you know, if you never get feedback on your writing, if you just kind of hoard up your three novels or four novels or whatever it is yes you might get them edited and stuff but you know you're not getting that live feedback that can help you develop as quickly as maybe you know you should or you want to um, now it might be different if you're someone who's you know written for 15 years before you're publishing everything <laughs> and you know you've got a stack of novels and you've you know you've had feedback on them and you know they're good for me I kind of needed a bit of confidence that my first book wasn't a pile of rubbish <laughs> you know and and it's really scary publishing your first book when you've 
oh, you know, yes. you're, you're putting this bit of you out into the world. And, <laughs> and, and like, you think it's okay. And, you know, you might have had, I mean, I had a, you know, a good editor and everything. Um, and I had a few people read it beforehand, beta readers, but it's, it's totally different putting it out there in the world. And for me personally, I needed that bit of validation before moving forward. So, you know, I think it depends how fast you want to climb your mountain and get to where you're going. Um, it might not have been the best marketing decision for me, but I think in terms of me as a writer, it was definitely the best decision at the time. And what is your mountain? What is it that you're you're looking to achieve your writing? If you don't mind me asking that question. <laughs> um, I think I have a couple of different mountains, actually. So I think I would like to get to the stage where I'm earning a decent living from my books. That I think that's my number one aim. But there is also a little bit of a kind of ego side of me <laughs> that I tie and shut off and push to the back because I know it's really not that important um but I think if I could like I don't know because I'm not after literary acclaim because I don't write literary novels but you know in the genre world I guess and speculative fiction it would be nice to have some recognition of that so I think that's kind of maybe a secondary mountain something to aim for yeah yeah (laughs) yeah I I completely get where you're coming from so I I went full-time about four months ago coming up to my four-month anniversary in a couple of days and uh, I I had a similar thing where I'm making a living from my writing and I'm like what's next because I don't just want to be at a point where I'm just writing books and I'm just making the money because to be honest I've never really been fueled by money the the only reason I wanted the money in the first place was to get to full-time and now I'm here so I want that goal and I'm the same because I write horror um, I've recently joined the Horror Writers Association with my goal, and I'll publicly announce this. I don't think I've actually mentioned this on any podcast before yet, um, but I'm, I'm, I want to get a Bram Stoker Award, which is the Horror Writers Association's mm-hmm. award they give out every year for novellas, for, for books. Um, so I'm, I'm exactly the same, even though I'm happy with my writing and the stuff that I'm producing is of uh, a standard that I can be proud of. There's still that tiny ego part of you that just goes, I just, just that, that, that badge, just that little... Um, but I mean, to be fair, I am I am quite jealous because you do have a USA Today best-selling tag against your name. So, do you want to talk us a little through how that happened and and what, if anything, that's done to help your writing career? Um, well, I'd say it hasn't has not okay. It ha- it probably has helped. It it was fairly recent. So, um, I'll congratulations, come, by I'll, the way. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, I guess I I should probably explain the kind of model that we used if people aren't aware of it um so there are a couple of sort of bestseller lists there's the new york times bestseller list which is really hard to get onto unless you're trad and there's the usa today bestseller list which is slightly easier um and it's basically made up of the books which have sold the most copies over a one week time period um so you know you can hit release in whatever week you want and and it's made up of the books which are the best selling during that week. And it is largely dominated, obviously, by traditional publishing um, because they have the big budget releases. You know, they're pushing out, you know, paperback copies left, right and centre. So it's hard for indies to get on there. And I think it's um, it's becoming harder. So it has become harder over the last few years. And I think it is gradually getting harder. So the kind of the, the strategy which um, a lot of people adopt, and this is what I was involved in, is to get a bunch of authors together. So I think there were 24 of us. Um, you each put a book into a box set and then you price it at 99 cents. So basically a reader is getting 
24 or however many books for 99 cents, which is an amazing deal. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and, and really you're not in it to make money. You are, you know, in it to kind of try and get as many sales as possible. And you focus on, you know, you'll have a six month pre-order period on wide platforms and three months on Amazon, which is the maximum you can have. You do have to get sales in more than one store. So you can't do it just on Amazon. You have to have um, at least 500 sales on one other platform to count. Um, I think it's just one plus Amazon, which you get your bulk of your sales in. So you get as many pre-orders as you can, and then you really push that launch week marketing. And then you just hope and pray that you (laughs) to hit that list. (laughs) So what kind of stuff are you doing in that initial launch week? Um, during the launch week, so we had, um, ads running, we had, um, so we had a party room, so a big Facebook group, which we'd set up and we'd had authors doing takeovers for, I think four months maybe prior to release. Um, so we really pushed that. We had, um, pretty much every paid promo you can think of going on. Um, we were shouting about on social media. We were begging people to buy it. Literally, there is no shame in this. <laughs> you are begging people to buy it. Um, yeah, and I think I think that was. I mean, it's usual marketing stuff, but yeah, a lot of it relies on paid ads, paid promos, um, and a bit of luck. If you're looking for the next best thing to invest in, try investing in your long-term health with Forward. Forward is intelligent medicine with a personal touch. Their doctors are dedicated to catching top killers like cancer and heart disease early, which could save you tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. So invest in a doctor that's invested in you. Visit GoForward.com to learn more about how Forward can help you manage your long-term health risks for one flat monthly fee. That's GoForward.com. Nice. So what are you working on at the minute and what's next for Alison Ingleby? So at the moment, I am working on the final book of my YA dystopian series, which is my first series. So this is the fourth and final book, um, which I had I had hoped would be out about six months ago. <laughs> <laughs> but um, one thing about doing um, a list aiming box set is it takes over your life. And I, I seriously worked on pretty much nothing else apart from the book for that box set and the book set box set marketing for six months. Um, and actually I worked on it, I think it was probably about eight months work in total, but pretty much six months solid work on that. So everything else pretty much got sidelined. Um, so I'm working on that story at the moment. So that should hopefully be out, um, end of the year. And then I'll be moving on probably to my dystopian fantasy series. Um, so I wrote book one of that for the box set. Um, and I really want to put it out because we were discussing this earlier, but it has a really pretty cover. <laughs> cover is <laughs> absolutely beautiful. And who, I am a bit of a cover addict. Uh, so it's covers by Joanne. Oh, okay, yep. Um, he's really good. And um, he is now booked out, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I need to get on his list to do my other covers for the series. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I will probably be writing the next book in that series um, with a view to releasing that next year. Fantastic. How are you managing your, your getting your words down? So talk a typical writing day, because you are, if I remember correctly, and obviously correct me if I am wrong, um, you are working for a company, but you have quite flexible hours. 
Am I wrong? No. So I am freelance. You're freelance. <laughs> ah, close. Yeah. So I do freelance writing work to kind of support my yeah. creating books habit. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I kind of juggle things. I think I would say that I am. So at the moment, I am not in a routine at all. Um, I've had a couple of really difficult months personally um, and a lot of stuff going on. So I'm kind of coming out of the, the dark side of that, I guess. Um, so my writing routine is all over the place. But generally, um, I generally like to get my words down in the morning and then do other stuff in the afternoon, whether that's client work or marketing or you know all of the other things that go into running a business. Yeah. And are you a, a person of habit? Do you have a routine or is it normally a case of you have your target and then you'll just do whatever it takes that morning to achieve that? Yeah, I've been experimenting, actually. Or I was experimenting um, with different strategies um, to try and be more productive. So, as I said, I'm a slow writer um, <laughs> and that's not that's not my typing speed necessarily. It's my thinking speed. Um, and because I'm a bit of a pantser discovery writer, I'm kind of figuring out things as I go along. So I find that I'm a lot slower than other people, which can be a bit frustrating. So I was trying different strategies um, to see what would make me more productive. So I do often find that going out of the house helps. So if I can go to a coffee shop um, and get some words down, um, I think just being outside of that home environment and not having the distractions of laundry and emails and internet (laughs) (laughs) helps yeah um and the other thing I which does help is sprinting with a friend so I've got a friend who's another sort of dystopian author and we sometimes do sprints together for a couple of hours in the morning and and that sometimes helps but I I guess for me it's knowing what I'm going to be writing um, and planning that out before I start writing does make a big difference so bringing it back round to uh, box sets and anthologies, one question that did pop up was you mentioned obviously the anthology um, that you put on yourself. How were you managing royalty splits with that? If we get into the nuts and bolts of it, were you were you looking specifically at royalty splits with the other with other artists or? Yeah, so so the one I did was it was a dystopian anthology called On the Brink. Um, it was actually initiated by another author um who I know because I'm like kind of run a dystopian group with him and I somehow ended up volunteering to run the anthology and I'm not quite sure how that (laughs) happened but it did go back to this thing about saying yes to everything um and so he recruited most of the people for the anthology so I was kind of managing it um, and pulling it together and it was a straight I think there were 12 of us all together and it was a straight 12-way royalty split um, we had somewhat one of the authors uh, in the anthology was also a cover designer so she did the cover designing everyone was supposed to get their own stories edited and a couple of us did proofreading um, and proofread all the stories. So we kind of absorbed all the um, the costs from that. We decided that we weren't going to spend money on a marketing budget. We were just going to do free marketing, I guess, and, and spreading the word. Um, so there were no costs going out. So it was just a sort of straightforward royalty split. And I just kind of calculated, you know, from uh, Book Report and Amazon, what the royalties we were getting in each month and how what that was split between 12 people 
and posted the figures up and was totally transparent about how much we'd earned and how much everyone was getting. So you didn't, we weren't tempted to use any of the services that are out there for royalty sharing and splitting? And um, I think the only ones, I mean, there's probably other ones that I don't know about. So I think the ones that I knew about was Bundle Rabbits. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and we we wanted the anthology to be in KU because you tend to get more income from page reads than from sales and also it was a single volume rather than you know multiple volumes coming together in one thing um so no i didn't know what other services are there that you can use it was mostly there's there's bundle rabbit there's another one um i cannot remember off the top of my head because we were saying earlier the minute you put on the spot um, i'm sure i've heard of one recently actually um it was might it be. one was it published drive offering yes. a royal split? yes they're, they're doing it now they they didn't do that sort of when ah, gotcha. earlier in the year i don't think but i think they are doing that now and um, which particularly i think for co-authoring must make it um a lot easier yeah okay so was the expendables was your first release your first novel release yes. correct Fantastic. and that was just over a year ago um, so it's about a year and a half ago. It was November half. 2017. Yeah. And like you say, you are you are a self-professed um, slow writer, but you still managed to come out with quite a few novels and works within the anthologies in the box sets over the last year and a half or so. So you've got a decent backlist behind you in order to advertise what it is and kind of showcase the fact that you're a writer. So what would... What advice would you give to someone who is sat at home now thinking, I'm a really slow writer. I don't know if I can get that ball rolling in terms of getting it rolling down the hill and trying to pick up speed because that initial push is just too hard. What would you say to that person? Um, so I guess if you're a slow writer, then you have to pick what you're doing. And this is where I probably haven't made it easy on myself. So I think since I started publishing, I, and so in 2017, I had a, a short story, which is a reader magnet and then Expendables, which is a full length novel in 2018, I had two novellas, which were in anthologies, a short story in an anthology, another short story, which was part <laughs> of a collaboration, two novels. And I, and then this year I've had one short story in an anthology, a full length novel in a box set, and I'm working on this one. So I guess if you look at the kind of total number of words and, and the number of things I've done, that's quite a lot even though I'm a slow writer but because I was kind of flipping about with the anthologies a bit and um, it's not all been focused on I guess my primary series and my primary kind of income driver I think when I started out I hope the anthologies might perhaps make more money than they do they don't tend to make much money and I would have probably been if I'd been 100% focused on money probably been better off just focusing on getting the novels out um, I guess the other thing, which is if you are a slow writer um, and if you are more disciplined than me, is don't write really long books. <laughs> the, more, the longer your books you are to write, the longer it takes you to write, the more it costs to edit um, and, you know, the slower you release them ultimately. So if you can write slightly shorter books, then that's that's probably a good thing. But I think the, the main thing is to be really focused on what your goal is. Um, and what you need to do to get that goal. Yeah, no, definitely that's one of the key things to do. Know exactly what it's you're trying to achieve because, I mean, my first few books were a lot longer. So I had my second book, um, Lazarus, was 100,000 words. Originally, it was meant to be 50 to 60K, but the story just, particularly when you're 
work on one of your earlier works, the story just gets gets away with whatever the hell it wants to do. So you end up putting a lot of words down um, and spending the time on it. It's not necessarily a bad thing, and it is probably one of the books that I'm I'm proudest of. But in the beginning, for me, my goal was just to publish books. Um, money would be nice, but it wasn't about that end goal at that point. It was just about proving that I could. Um, so yeah, absolutely, like you say, finding what your goal is, and and your goal may change over time. I mean. I know that mine has, um, has, has yours changed over the past year and a half? Yeah. So, I mean, I think certainly my, my first goal was to, to publish a book and, you know, ideally to get a five-star review. That's what I wanted. (laughs) 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 I know I do. And I think, I mean, it sounds awful, but I do think it is important to recognize that, you know, you do, most people will have some kind of ego there and you know you can't completely ignore it because you know otherwise it'll it'll keep you know snapping away at you. Mm. Um, but it's learning to control it, obviously, and and you know do what you want um, with it and not let it drive you. But yeah, I think I think I just wanted to write a book that someone enjoyed reading, basically. Um, and and yeah, and following on from that, I think then my goal was, to, and it still is, I guess, to make each book better than the last book. Um, so I'm kind of growing and developing my writing craft, which I think so far I've done based on my reader feedback. Um, and now my goal is to look more at what is my strategy over the long term. So I think one thing I've certainly figured out over the past two years is that I can't do the rapid release model. So I am not one of these people who can put out, you know, a full length novel every month which I know is ideally the way you can make money on Amazon these days, but I just can't do that. That's not how my process works. That's not how I work. So, and it's been quite a long time for me to actually accept that. (laughs) And even (laughs) even now I have days when that's quite difficult because I'm like, oh, maybe I can just write all the words and publish my book and get everything done. And I'm like, no, Alison, you can't actually do that. You can only write so many words a day and your books end up complex and sprawling and that's what people love about them. So um, you know, accepting my limitations, I guess, has been has been quite hard. So I guess my goal now is looking at how I can be in this for the long term and get to that stage where I'm going to be a full time author and I get that income and what the right path is for me to do that. Have you thought about traditional at all? Because, I mean, you've spoken a lot and you've obviously gone very in-depth in terms of what it takes to be an independent. Um, and one thing that I'm very conscious of at the minute with this podcast is I've only had indies on so far. Um, uh, tell a lie, Martha was uh, previously trad pub years and years ago. Um, and I will be getting some trad pub people on here. I've got a couple um, already lined up. But have you looked at going traditional at all? Has that ever been tempting for you? Um, no, I haven't looked at it, actually. I've always been indie. I wouldn't rule it out. Um, but I think the main driver between going traditional would either be if I had a book that I felt was more literary or more, you know, would do better in a traditionally published market that would be hard to market indie um, or to reach new readers in which case I'd only probably want to do that once I've got to a certain income level with my indie books. So I guess my strategy at the moment is indie, 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 indie. And hopefully at the point where I'm making enough money to maybe do something which is more 
um, I say a passion project, but actually all my books are probably passion projects, which is why I'm not making as much money as I should. <laughs> but maybe something which is, you know, I want to invest um, to do something a bit different, which might appeal to a more traditional market than I might consider it at that point. But at the moment, it's not something I'm looking at. I do find it absolutely fascinating to think of. So I gave a talk at the University of Lincoln um, a couple of months ago to a group of creative writing students, and there were about 30 people in the class. And the first question I asked was how many people uh, have uh, uh, thought of approaching a traditional publisher, and obviously everyone's hands goes up, and I was like, how many people have thought of going indie? And I think it was literally 10, yeah, three out of 30 is 10%. 10% of the room put their hand up. Um, and my talk wasn't to convince people to go independent. It was to show my journey and what I've gone on just to show that it's an option. And then also to kind of do some pros and cons against uh, traditional and self-pub. And I find it endlessly fascinating now that we've, we've had conferences where we have entire rooms of people who are making this work that are, are making the independent thing happen for them. And like you say, there are all different levels and that whole stigma around independent just seems to have flown out of the window. And, and like you say, it's, it's your main route that you're pursuing. It's the main route I'm pursuing and a lot of people that I know. Um, I just think it's something that no one really could have predicted about 10, 15 years ago. No, I think it's flown out of the window in some circles, but not in others. I think mm. there are still some people who feel that there is a bit of a stigma around kind of self-publishing or indie publishing. Um, but I think the thing that that really puts me off about traditional publishing is that whole thing about querying and getting rejected <laughs> and, and not even necessarily because your book isn't good enough because publishers, you know, agents and editors get so many books, which are great, but they can only take a certain amount. Um, and particularly if it's not on, you know, it's not quite on trend um, or it's not quite what they're looking for, or they've already taken on a book, which is, you know, got slightly similar themes or something then you know you're just kind of pushed out because of that. So I guess the advantage of indie publishing for me is that I can get genuine feedback from readers over what they like, what they don't like. That helps me kind of develop my craft, become a better writer. Um, and I don't have to go through a million rejections to, <laughs> to, get, to get somewhere, you know, and to get my book out in the world. It's a Stephen King story about the nail on the wall with the rejection slips and getting a bigger nail when it... When it gets full, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, you mentioned your, your your beta team a couple of times. Um, do you want to just give a little overview on how you manage to acquire a group of readers who are reading your work and giving that initial feedback and, and managing it? Yeah, sure. So um, they've actually come from a number of sources. So I have maybe five or six people at the moment. Um, and a couple of them initially, because when you're starting out, it's like, well, who do you get to read it? I could get my mom to read it or, you know, <laughs> and, and the advice is not to do that. I do have one of my personal friends who is on my beta team, but she's really good. She is um, very critical um, and she's kind of a bit of my kind of ideal reader who I have in my head who I'm writing for. So that's quite helpful. Um, the other people I kind of recruited through I think initially through a few Facebook groups that I was part of there are Facebook groups where you can look for beta readers um, uh, and put requests out and and beta read for other people and I've done quite a lot of beta reading for other people I do quite enjoy it um, and I think I started off with a short story which I put out and then a few people from that said oh you know I really enjoyed that I'd be happy to do some more so they then got onto my series and, and basically every time I have a book out I ask if they're happy to beta read it 
Um, and I've also had a couple of people who've come through who've kind of joined my mailing list and then become ARC readers, so part of my book launch team, um, and then offered to beta read as well. And I have a couple of author friends who sometimes beta read for me as well. So I think it's it's good to have that kind of mix of, of people and get opinions from different sources. And actually, I did get my mum to beta read. <laughs> so after I wrote my first book um, and my parents read it and my mum was like, well, I did enjoy it. But there was this, this, this and this, which I felt you could have done better. I was like, right, you're beta reading the next Fantastic. one. Fantastic. <laughs> Give me some critical feedback when I can actually do something about it. That's useful. Not having a parent. Just like, oh, it's lovely. My uh, my first entry into writing was writing a short story that was going to enter into uh it was the british it was writing magazine and uh it was about i think one and a half thousand words i remember just handing it over to my mum. just uh, to be fair she didn't ask for such a read at all so i just gave it to her and just went mum, do, do you mind just reading this and let me know what you think and she kind of read it and went oh that's nice and just gave it back and i was like okay and I, I could have just ended it there that could have been my journey for me just put it down oh, well no. screw that but no yeah I, I i persevered but like like you say unless they're giving honest critical feedback because i find personally i don't if, if people tell me oh yeah your work is good i liked it i hear that but it doesn't really go in because you want that critical feedback no no work is perfect so to have those nuggets of, of information come back to you that you can then work on and develop and make yourself better are just invaluable yeah and they definitely make my books better my beta mm. team they are amazing <laughs> fantastic shout out to ali's shout uh, out to team. my beta team yeah <laughs> okay um so I've got a question from one of my patrons over at patreon.com forward slash the great writers share. It's uh, it's one that I think we can both tackle. It's not necessarily exclusive to you, but it's one that I think that we can both kind of come at and see if um, we can answer it for him. So uh, I've got, it's a question from David Hind and he says, does one need an MFA or a degree to exceed and make a living as a writer? I went to college many years ago and now I wish I'd studied English literature. Um, is it necessary to get such a degree to be successful in writing? Um, I mean, I think the, the standard answer to that is no. I have to say that I've also wished that I did a degree in English literature or language just because there were so many grammar rules I wasn't taught in school, which I've only <laughs> learned over the past few years. Like, I don't know if you were the same, but honestly, I'm like, sometimes I, I thought my grammar was good and then I started writing and started working with an editor and I'm like, wow, there are all these things I didn't know. So I think for me, certainly the process of the process of working with an editor, the process of reading lots and lots and lots of craft books um, and looking at story structure and reading and watching films and TV programs a little bit more critically has been a lot more useful to me than an academic style degree. And I, I mean, I guess so I have not done an MFA or you know a degree in creative writing so I can't really comment from that perspective because I don't actually know what it involves my perception is that it's perhaps a little bit more literary in style um, whereas a lot of the things that I focus on is kind of how do I write a story that the reader really wants to read and grabs them and um, so I might yeah I might be completely wrong about that so no I think you're absolutely right I mean I, <laughs> I yeah. <laughs> no so I did um I did an English and drama degree and uh the English degree it was sort of about 75% of the overall course but for me and I've said this to people sort of a lot that actually having the English degree in no way at all helped with with my creative writing at all it's um like you said it's a lot more literary so 
Um, I guess it depends what what course you're studying and where it is, but mine tended to revolve a lot around studying uh, Victorian texts and Georgian texts, looking at um, ways to analyze, so going down the roads of um, sort of like Freudian analysis and, and just different ways of doing that. And it's stuff that it's useful for analyzing texts because that's what it is. But in terms of creativity, in terms of contemporary stuff and writing for a modern audience, for me personally, I didn't find any use in that. And I've been to a couple of creative writing classes. And again, they've, they've, they've served some purpose, but I think there are so many different ways of writing and different styles and genres that you just got to find the one that works for you and just go for it. And it definitely shouldn't ever let someone, it shouldn't be a barrier for anyone to start not, let me try it again. Shouldn't be a barrier to stop people getting into the art of writing. So um, David, just keep pushing. Yeah. And I think, I think I will say that I have done a number of online courses. So um, I think back when I decided to kind of properly take creative writing seriously. So this is probably going about back about eight years or something. Um, so I did an online course with the Faber Academy, I think, which was a kind of introduction one. And I found that quite interesting and useful. And then I did another sort of similar but a different focus online course maybe a year or two later and again I learned something from that um so I think you kind of continue to learn as you go along so it's not that I feel that studying and studying creative writing is not important I kind of feel like it it is and you do need to do that you know you need to read critically unless you're born knowing you know story structure and character arcs and all this sort of stuff like everyone is (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but I do think you can learn it yourself you know if you put some time and effort in and, and you know maybe a bit of money because you know some courses cost money and that's because the creators deserve to earn a living hmm. and you know read different books um on on the writing craft and then implement it and then get feedback whether that's from beta readers or an editor or whatever um and there's so many good resources which are free today I mean there were some amazing YouTube videos which discuss story structure and um, analyze different aspects of characters or films or things which you know I've had some real kind of aha moments from. <laughs> yeah. yeah I was having this conversation with a friend last night who was talking about all the different things that she wants to learn that she's not sure she'll ever learn and I was I, I literally said to her the internet is here there's, there's nothing you can't find online. Yeah, or the, the, <laughs> it's it, it, this magical resource that teaches you all this stuff that you need to know. And all you've got to be willing to do is just put in the time to, to learn. And coming back to your point about sort of the grammar and the nuances of writing, like you say, if you're working with an editor, that stuff that you learn along the way or that stuff that your editor is there to pick up and help you with. So there are so many things around you. And I guess it also depends what level you're at in your career because I'm a very different writer now to I was when I started with I've learned a lot along the way but I think people who release their first work there's almost an expectation from other people that there'll be certain mistakes there'll be certain stylistic things that you do that professionals won't is it it's yeah it's just part of the journey yeah I mean I I have a a kind of completed novel on my computer which will never see the light of day it was my I actually I found it a couple of months ago and I read back some of it and oh it made me cringe so much (laughs) really I've not braved that step yet mine's just I printed it off and I left it in a drawer and it's just there but it's great it's great because you realize how far you've come Mm. and like how much you know how much you've improved as a writer over the years and I I personally find that really rewarding yeah absolutely 
Okay, I'm conscious of time. So are you ready to jump into our final quick fire round? 10 questions as quickly as you can answer them. Uh, if you can't think of an answer, feel free to say pass uh, and we can come back to it and see if your subconscious will process it in the time we're asking the other questions and we'll okay. go forward. But it's all just I'm fun. <laughs> I'm <biting my> nails. <laughs> You've been through this before, so you should be prepared for this. I know. I'm not sure I was prepared for it first time around. I was terrified then as well. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's dive in. President Snow or Sauron? President Snow. What's your favourite flavour of ice cream? Blackberry. What star sign are you? Scorpio. Do you prefer hills or rivers? Hills. Who was the last writer to make you smile? Um, Sarah J. Mars. How high can you jump? I have no idea. <laughs> Three foot. Three foot. <laughs> Three foot. That's fair. Probably, Probably. not. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> if you could live in any fictional world, where would it be? Oh, I write dystopias, so it's all worlds that I don't want to live in. <laughs> <laughs> I don't uh, know, I can't think. Astronomy or spelunking? Astronomy. How many marshmallows can you fit in your mouth? I feel like this is one which needs a physical test. <laughs> have you, have you never done this test? I know, I've never done this test. <gasps> everyone, I thought everyone had done this test at some point in their life. No. I'm thinking like I, the, okay. the proper like couple of centimetres yeah. cubed. I don't know, maybe eight i'll find a bag of marshmallows and let you know okay that'll be a bonus <laughs> bonus feature uh, and final question uh, what is the one book that you wish you'd written oh red rising nice okay so to finish up where can our listeners find out more about yourself and everything you're working on um so you can find out more about all my fiction stuff at alisoningleby.com I'm also going to be launching a bit of a service to help fellow pantsers uh, solve their way out of their plot problems, which uh, will be at theplottamer.com. It's not quite set up yet. It might be set up when this goes out live. Depending I like on that name. <laughs> the Plot Tamer. Imagine, are you going to be on the cover with just a stool holding it up to a, an angry lion? Oh, I don't know, but friends were talking about like whip <laughs> and black leather, and I'm like, I'm not sure that's really the image. <laughs> that might be the wrong branding to go with for that one. Yeah. <laughs> fantastic. Well, thank you very much for coming to the show. Do appreciate your time. It's been fantastic talking to you. Oh, it's lovely to chat to you, Dan. And thank you, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Great Writer Share podcast. Next week, we'll be joined by John Crinan, and we'll be talking about everything books, short stories, and podcasting. And as I was on his show recently, I'll be able to get my own back on some of those questions and see how he gets on with our quick fire round. And don't forget, you can get early access to every episode of the Great Writer Share podcast, as well as bonus episodes with our guests and the chance to ask upcoming guests any of your questions by becoming a patron of the show. All you need to do is visit www.patreon.com forward slash greatwriterssshare and support the show for as little as $1 a month. One more time, that's www.patreon.com forward slash great writers share. Until next time. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
Hey y'all, this is Kenya, creative director and co-founder of Domino Sound. And this is Alexandra De Palma, executive producer and co-founder of Domino Sound. And we're a queer, disabled, Black woman-owned podcast production company and network creating authentic, inclusive, provocative content. We just launched Domino Presents, which is a new series of special audio projects. The premiere episode features the founders of Poppy Juice, the queer art collective throwing the hottest parties in New York City and around the world. We also recommend The Cheat Code, our hit 10-episode audio soap opera surrounding a love affair. Think Love & Hip Hop meets The Affair meets The Sopranos. Follow us on IG at DominoSoundCO to keep up. And listen to our shows on the ACAST app or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Domino Sound. ACAST, 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 ACAST recommends. recommends.